My name is Johan Orberg and today is April 20th of 2018 and I'm here with Rona Goldwitz at the Brooklyn College for the Our Streets Our Stories project at the Brooklyn Public Library. What's your Brooklyn story? Well, I live in a large apartment building here in Brooklyn. It's on the corner of Ocean Avenue and Avenue I. And um, it was when it was set up, it was given the rather pretentious grand name of the Premier House. But it used to be known locally as the Tiny Tim Building. And Tiny Tim was an oddball performer in the 1960s and going on. And he was a very big guy, and he had long stringy hair, and he used to sing songs from the 1920s in a high falsetto voice while strumming on a tiny ukulele. So, so Tiny Tim um, sang Tiptoe Through the Tulips, that was his most famous song, and he lived in the building uh, when it was new in the early 60s for a couple of years. Uh, he was the only celebrity we ever had. So years later, when um, I was asked to write a newsletter for the building, we had no celebrity news. We didn't have much of any kind of news. And I was always casting around for something to write about. I remembered that uh, a neighbor in the building who had lived in the neighborhood years before told me that there used to be a church on the site where our building was beforehand. So I decided to look into that. And uh, I went with my um, daughter, she was about 10 or 11 years old at that time. We went down to Municipal Hall in downtown Brooklyn to look at the real estate records and try to find out about this church and whether it really had existed there. We didn't know what we were doing, but the title searchers helped us a little bit. And we found out that, yes, indeed, there was a church, the Ocean Avenue Congregational Church, on the site. So then we made our second expedition. We went to the Brooklyn Historical Society, and we asked the librarian there whether they had any information about the Ocean Avenue Congregational Church. Well, she brought out a large box of materials. It was like Christmas and your birthday all in one. It was so exciting. It had all kinds of materials from, from this church. There were a lot of flyers for pancake breakfasts, as I, I recall, and you know, just the day-to-day -day items of, of, about the church. But the, um, and there was a photo of the church. It was a large, beautiful stone building. Hard to imagine it had completely disappeared. But um, the most valuable items were from the 25th and the 50th anniversaries of the church. They had put together, they had had anniversary dinners, and they had put together little pamphlets where they described the history of the church. And it went back to about 1900 when the um, neighborhood was first being developed and built. And um, the, in, in those days, they said the streets were just mud and people used to have to carry around a plank with them to sort of make their own sidewalk as they're walking down the street. And a group of 32 people had gotten together to start this church. And as these houses were under construction, they would meet in 
you know, one of the houses that was being built. And from week to week, they sometimes didn't know which house would be available because as they were being finished, um, they, they had to move along. Uh, but eventually the last house was built in this development and they were given some space in this um, building that uh, was existing in our current location, which was the field house of an athletic uh, organization. And eventually the families chipped in a great deal of money. A lot of them took out mortgages on their homes so that they could have money to start building a church. And in 1904, they built the first section of the church, and in subsequent years, they built more and more. And um, I found out that churches have a life cycle just the same way that people do. There, in, in 1928, at their 25th anniversary, they had 650 members, and you know that eventually started to decline. Towards the end, they had 350 members of whom 200 were absentees. They didn't come to church. So in 1960, they sold the property and my building was eventually built there. Um, there's actually more to the story. Well, when we had been looking up the municipal records, um, we saw that every single document that we looked at mentioned that the property had previously been the property of a Robert McGaw. And it kept mentioning this person's name. I never heard of him. I didn't know who he was, but I thought he must be somebody important. So one day when I was in the Brooklyn Public Library Central Branch, back in those days in the lobby, they used to have the card catalogs, and I saw one was marked uh, Brooklyn Genealogy. So I just took a chance and I looked up Robert McGaw and not only did they have materials on him, they had an actual pamphlet about him and it was really fantastic. Once again it was like coming upon a treasure trove of materials. It was so exciting. But he was a man who was born in 1738 in Ireland and he came to this country with his parents um, when he was young. And he, they, they lived in Pennsylvania. He, um, he became an attorney and he worked, of course, for the crown uh, because we were part of England at that time. But when the um, um, independence movement started, he was all in for that. And he became a delegate to um, the Philadelphia group that was trying to develop the, the country newly. And when war broke out, he was made a colonel, and he became a colonel um, of a Pennsylvania regiment. They came up here to New York, and he became a trusted aide. He was very highly regarded and held in high esteem. And he became a trusted aide to George Washington. And he was put in charge of the um, uh, the Fort Washington Fort up in northern Manhattan. His, his regiment also fought in the Battle of Brooklyn where he was captured and he was sent to the provost prison which is close to where the Brooklyn Bridge is now. But in those days they used to mostly parole the officers and he was paroled, he was sent to live in Gravesend at the house of the sheriff of Brooklyn 
who was uh, Sheriff uh, Van Brunt was his name. And he had a 17-year-old daughter. And um, even though Robert McGaw at this point was about 40 years old, he and the 17-year-old ended up getting married and having three children. Uh, two of them were boys, one named Van Brunt and one named Stephen. And when the sheriff of Brooklyn died, he had vast land holdings. That land passed to his grandsons. And um, that was how, and, and eventually his, their descendants lived on the property and they had a large, large farm, many hundreds of acres. And eventually they sold our corner of the property to this church for, for one dollar for the church to be built. So um, there is in northern Manhattan a street called Colonel Robert McGaw Street, and uh, I, I'm glad that there's this memory of this colonel. Um, what I take away from all of this is that everybody always says Brooklyn is changing, and I think that's just as true if you look to the past, even to the far distant past, because we've certainly changed a lot since then. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Story. It was very exciting uh, to find it out. Um, it's been good. I've been I've been living there for forty two years, and I like it. You know, and it's just I'm still there. It's just a couple of blocks from here, which is one of the things I like about it, being close to Brooklyn College. So, uh, but I, I like the history, and I did write it up in several issues of our newsletter. I called it History in Our Own Backyard. Yeah, yeah. The the. Which year did you? I moved here in seventy six. Yes. So um, the neighborhood has changed in an interesting way. It's changed in a way that isn't talked about as much as some other changes. A lot of the times you hear about the gentrification of Brooklyn, or you hear about um, changing ethnicities. You know, a neighborhood that uh, that uh, had primarily one. Uh, one ethnicity is now changed to something else. My neighborhood has undergone a different kind of transformation, I would say, in that this was, uh, there were a lot of Jews living here, secular Jews, and there still are today, but it's changed radically because the people who live here now are very orthodox Jews. And that kind of uh, sort of an internal change has brought a lot of changes, the kinds of stores and businesses, the kinds of uh, activities going on in the building, you know, in the building and the neighborhood are, are very different. So I've seen a lot of changes along those lines. For instance, my, pool, my building has a swimming pool, and Saturdays it used to be jam-packed up there. Uh, you could barely find a place to sit, and now since it's the Sabbath, well, Saturday is the emptiest day up there. So uh, that's just one small example of a change. Yeah. So have you been working in I, I did when I, I did work, I worked for the Food and Drug Administration, which was located in Brooklyn in, in Sunset Park um, in the year 2000. I worked in the laboratory as a chemist. Um, we built a new lab in Jamaica, Queens in 2000, but I've retired quite a few years ago now.
is there anything else you would like to add to this interview? Your book and experience, or some history? <laughs> or I, I, I think that about sums it up. I mean, I really enjoy living in Brooklyn. There's no place else like it. And Brooklyn people are, you know, got a lot of heart, a lot of soul, and certain kind of character that you just don't find in other places, I find. It could be ready for change. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Same so here, Johan. You so <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs>